All right, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2. We've been going through going through the book of Revelation and uh, not not through the book of Revelation, but we've been visiting these letters to the churches. We want to see if if God has something particularly to say to us. And in these letters as he's looking at this church, I feel there are things that may apply to us in various avenues that he picks out of these churches. And these themes don't just happen in one period of time, uh, but they are often found in churches in our day and time. And such is the case with the church at Thyatira. So we'll pick up reading at verse number 18, Revelation 2 and verse number 18. And I want to talk to you this morning on this subject a church that slumped into seduction. A church that slumped into seduction. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works and your love and the fa- and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent for her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into, uh, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden, only Hold fast what you have done until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A church that slumped into seduction. Many of you may remember the scandal from several years back concerning the website Ashley Madison. It was a website that was solely dedicated to assisting married men and women to break their wedding vows and have an affair. Their motto was, life is short, have an affair. The site made millions by connecting married men and women so that they might commit adultery. 
Now, I'm sure that the promise to the customers as they came online and it was probably in the fine print, the thing at the bottom where you say okay, I'm sure that they promised that all of their sensitive information, their email addresses, their uh, their banking information, their uh, mailing address, all of that would be kept discreet and no one would ever know of their illicit activities. But a group of hackers broke in to the secure server for Ashley Madison and down into the electrodes and down into the files and the folders and all the way down deep inside into the databanks and downloaded all the account holders' information. The hackers advised the company that they would release all of the information contained in that personal data from the website unless that they completely cease their operation and close down the site Ashley Madison. Well, Ashley Madison balked at their threat, and so the hackers did release the entire client list onto the Internet for public consumption. This sent shockwaves through the media. When the story broke in 2015, revelations of account members' names and addresses seemed to come out every day. The list was inundated with government officials, politicians, civil servants. One police officer in Texas committed suicide over the release of the names and addresses because he was among them. There have also been some high-profile Christian figures and celebrities on this list. One of the most high-profile was a man by the name of Josh Duggard. He was a, a member of the reality star reality TV show called 18 and Counting. Uh, not long after this came out, he was wrapped up, or not long before this all came out, he was wrapped up in another scandal when formally sealed court documents were released that showed Josh Duggard had been charged with child molestation. Here recently, again, he's been in trouble with child pornography charges and actually is under arrest. These revelations have, has taken his reputation and Christian testimony and ripped them into shambles and only time will tell if his marriage will survive. Now, these revelations and others that came out in the Christian community, a list too long uh, to focus on, these names of pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and choir directions, all, or choir directors, on and on, have sent shockwaves and mortified many communities all over the United States. But there is one person with whom this information brought no emotion of surprise. When these names were revealed, one person was not caught off guard in the least little bit. His name is Jesus. He walks among the candlesticks of the churches of the living God and he sees all the identities. He sees all the emails. He sees every sinful indulgence of both Christians and so-called Christians that are associated with the church of the living God. This is what is taking place in these verses. We are seeing firsthand this church at Thyatira has been in 
inundated not by a backdoor teaching that came last week, I believe at Pergamum. No, no, no. This was front and center, blatant sin going on in this church of the living God. And Jesus sees it and he calls it for what it is and he begins to name names in the church, this Jezebel that is among them. And he he forcefully and vividly reports on this church that slumped into seduction. This is a very uh, uh, precise, eye-opening, frightening letter from the Lord Jesus to this church at Thyatira. And every one of us, Listen, I'm just going through these one by one. I don't know anybody's background. I don't know anything about anybody in this room. We're just going through these letters and all of us need to be made aware. We either need to repent or we need to be very aware that this can happen to any church. And so Jesus has brought us to this place and we're going to take a close look at it. And I want to look at three facts in this church that we need to reckon with. Number one, I want you to see the discovery of their sin. The discovery of their sin. You know, such acts of adultery and fornication have a character of a certain amount of discretion. You know, you've all seen the movies and everything about how things are hidden in, in secret motel rooms. And you've seen news articles of how subterfuge is used to... Uh, to uh, uh, disguise their activities and to keep them from others that might be looking on. Acts are done in the darkness of night behind locked doors with the shades drawn. But none of these are a protection for sin from the eyes of the Son of God. Jesus makes that very clear. I believe the words of Jesus very forcefully reveal this in these letters of introduction. Here is Jesus Jesus, to whom all judgment, he said it at the very end, and he said it in his ministry, all judgment has been handed over to the Son, Jesus Christ. And here he is with his eyes wide open, seeing what's taking place at the church at Thyatira. I want you to see, first of all, in this discovery of sin, the symbols of his Ability. Look at verse number 18 to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? The words of the Son of God. Notice this. Who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. John the Revelator here, he pictures the searching out of Jesus Christ with literary symbols. Jesus' eyes were not flames of fire and his feet were not burnished bronze, but they gave the appearance of being so. He's using literary pictures and comparisons to show us what he is seeing. And he says that his eyes were a flame of fire. This is a symbol of the piercing ability of Jesus' vision to burn through the dross of hypocrisy and religious form to the truth of a person's very being. Jesus does not see like your pastor sees. He sees far beyond that. He looks into all of our hearts. He, he sees my heart to its furthest extent, all the dark places and corners in my life, and He sees them in your lives as well. It is said that the human eye only perceives a small percentage of the 
uh, light color spectrum. You know, our human eye can only see so much of the visible world around us, but there are far more light rays that we just cannot perceive. You think about infrared. Infrared is what's used with your remote control. That is a light signal that we just flat cannot see without special equipment. There's some special equipment that will pick up on infrared rays, but our eyes cannot see that. But the eyes of Christ see far past the array of universal color and sees the shades and tones of the thoughts and intents of the human heart. The believer will see these same eyes at either the judgment seat of Christ or the unbelief will see them at the great white throne judgment. When it comes to prophecy, when it comes to end times, I'm of a mind, and I think the scriptures bear this out, that there is a judgment seat of Christ where we will be judged as servants. I don't know what all of that entails. My sin has been dealt with at the cross. I have been redeemed by trusting and, and putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but there is something to be said about our role as servants, as workers, as those that are called to labor for the Lord Jesus. This will be a reckoning day for that, not our sins. I don't believe it's something where our sins will be judged. They were judged at Calvary. But the great white throne judgment is a place in which every person that has rejected Jesus Christ from the very dawn of time to the end of time will stand before the great white throne judgment and there the piercing eyes of Jesus will make it readily apparent their desertion, their uh, their execution for an eternity in a burning hell. And so these eyes that are of a flame of fire are fixed on these churches, and particularly this church at Thyatira. Also, it talks about his feet are symbolized as fine brass. This is the picture of what bronze or uh, you know bronze has a yellowish color copper uh, copper is also called uh, certain elements of copper are also called bronze and those when they are heated to a molten stage they glow very bright and so John sees these feet uh, that are walking among these churches and those feet are bronze they're white hot that means nothing can touch them uh, you you wear bronze shoes or or uh, uh, heavy heavy uh, soled shoes you won't even feel the ground underneath you I think that's what's being communicated here where Jesus is stepping he's not being harmed the 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 head of Satan may have bruised his heel but not anymore he is walking in in, in bronze is always a picture of judgment Jesus is walking through these uh, these churches in judgment in looking upon them in judgment there is nothing Nothing that can deter the crushing weight of his feet of judgment. These are the symbols of his ability. But now we get a sense of his aspect. Look at verse number 19 with me. He says that I know your works. Verse number 23 as well. And I will strike down her children all, all and all the churches. I will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each one of you according to your works. Here, Jesus is alluding to the fact that he sees all internally and externally. 
Uh, we have, uh, but he has the ability to sense what he sees and to make an absolute correct deduction in righteous judgment. You know, oftentimes we can come upon a scene and we can get the wrong idea. We can see a scene and come into a situation in which we don't know the whole context. We don't know what everything that has gone on prior to that moment. And we can take a wrong judgment from that. Well, Jesus is not that way because of His omniscience, His all-knowingness. When He walks in and sees this scene, He knows what has preceded that scene. He knows every bit of the context of that scene. And He knows how that scene will play out in the future. And when He makes a judgment, He makes one in complete knowledge. In verse 19, it says, I know your works. And in verse number 23, it talks about he who searches the minds and heart. He not only sees, but he sees with understanding. You may see from the outside, and we may see from the outside. I, I, I typed in Google, you know, just this year. We're in May uh, right now. And uh, just this year, I began to look and see how many mass shootings have we seen in this year. And I was shocked as I rolled up on Wikipedia uh, day after day in our country, whether it be two or three, whether it be ten or nine, there have been mass shootings over and over again in, in this country. Now, don't get me wrong here. I, I believe in the Second Amendment to be able to arm ourselves, but at the same time, we see these senseless killings and we look at them like the, the one at the FedEx building near Indianapolis where nine people were shot in the parking lot there in Indianapolis and then also in Boulder, Colorado at the grocery store. A guy goes into the grocery store, store and kills ten people, nine of them with a gun and, and self-inflicts the last one. And we look at those and we have what would motivate someone to do such a thing? We wrestle over why these things happen. Now here recently there's a podcast that's been revealed uh, looking back to Columbine High School. And I remember back in, I think it was 2000, in the May of 2000, those two boys that went into Columbine High School and killed all of those people, I think 23 to 24 people slaughtered in a day. And We still don't know exactly what was going on in these people's mind. But I want you to understand something, is that Jesus Christ is one that searches the mind and the heart. And before His fiery eyes, all is seen and understood, both actions and attitudes both motions and motivations. You may be here today and think that your, your sinful actions or my sinful actions, I may think uh, that they are plans are neatly and secretly tucked away where no one can see and no one knows. But I want to assure you, as is made plain to the church at Thyatira, Jesus knows exactly what's going on in every one of our lives. Notice not only we see the symbols of His ability, the sense of His aspect or what He sees, but I want you to see also the space of his advance. Look with me in chapter 2 and verse number 21. I find this so interesting. In verse number 21, he says, he's talking about this Jezebel who's in this church and she is teaching something that is so anti-God. She has led the church astray into false teaching. But look what he says in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. Here is a woman making havoc 
tearing down the name of Jesus Christ in this church, and Jesus just doesn't slide in and smack her, just, just mow her down with His judgment, which He easily could. He said, I gave her time to repent. Also, when it talks about her followers... Uh, down in here, he says in verse number 22, uh, commit adultery where I will throw into great tribulation. Notice this, unless they repent of her works. It seems like as though even her followers, he's holding off. He's being patient. Although these symbolic descriptions of the brazen feed and are referenced to immediately after the description of his fiery eyes in perception, yet that is not the way he judges. He shows us first his eyes and then quickly behind that come the feet of judgment. But in these verses, he's speaking of the apostate woman that is doing this teaching whose deeds in the church are absolutely appalling. It says that he gave her a time to repent. His eyes may see immediately the wickedness of our thoughts and actions, but thank God His feet of judgment are mercifully slow. You know, as we go through this passage of Scripture, and I hope every one of us is doing some heart searching right now, and, and God, what are you saying to me? And what if, where, where have I been hiding my sin? It was with, has been made plain uh, several times in our Bible studies. We all have our sins. We all have those things that easily beset us, and, and they can take root and grow and become more and more of a stranglehold of our spiritual life. And here is an opportunity where Jesus... Jesus is looking uh, upon us and He's pinpointing these things. And it's a time for all of us to say, hey God, what, what, do you, what do you see in my life? Here's the space to repent. Here's a place to get right. It's far better to do it on your own until it's brought from the rooftops like Jezebel and announced to all. It's far better to get it right right now. It's to repent of it right now. So make things right with the Lord Jesus right now before He comes in judgment. His eyes may immediately see the wicked of our thoughts and actions but his feet are slow to judgment in verse 22 he talks about those that are duped into following Jezebel they're given a space to repent of us repent all of us here both young and old have rebelled against God and even uh, 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 God enough to be sent to hell a thousand times over you and I should be in the flames and God rightfully just in doing so. And yet He has given us life and a space to repent. He does that with, He does that with the wicked, all oh, the wicked of Chattanooga and New York City and all over this nation. And He does that with faith community church as well. He is slow to judgment, wanting us to repent, wanting us to get right. But God in mercy gives us a space to repent. We see first of all the discovery of their sin. Notice second of all, I want you to see a description of their state. In verse 19 he said, I know your works, your love, faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. These letters to the churches have given us a first-hand description of what was taking place in that church. And this is because Jesus was well aware of what's taking place in them. And John may have been hundreds of miles away, but the eyes of the Lord Jesus were witness to what was taking place right then and there. Now, what is Jesus seeing? 
What is Jesus seeing in bringing such threatenings to this church? Well, first of all, we see a church sinful and and deceived. Verse number 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. In the center of Christ's attention of the church at Thyatira was this woman called Jezebel. Now, to be honest... We don't know if this is indeed a woman whose name was Jezebel. I, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of think that even in that culture, it would have been it would have been naming your kid Adolf. You know, like right, who who names their kid Adolf? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I kind of think that this is more of a character label. That's not to say that they don't know exactly who this is in that church. I believe it would have been obvious. I believe if they, as they read this letter in Thyatira, I believe everybody's head would have turned. They would have been looking at someone in particular. But this may well be a, a moniker of description on this woman. Uh, she is called so because of her leadership of the people of God in, uh, uh, into idolatry. If you'll remember the story of Jezebel, maybe you don't. In, in the Old Testament, there was the story of Jezebel, uh, King Ahab. This was after Israel had broken to Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And Ahab was the king in the north of the, of the uh, Israelite people. And he had a wife named Jezebel. And she was a wicked, idolatrous woman. Uh, you know, anybody know the story of Naboth's vineyard and how she had Naboth uh, uh, killed to give the vineyard to the king Ahab because he pitched a fit to his wife and wanted it for a garden of herbs. What a powerful message that is. But Jezebel was a wicked, wicked woman. And so... So I'm sure uh, that her character, uh, this character of the Old Testament laid perfectly over this woman in the New Testament. And notice in verse number 20, it has the word tolerate. He said, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. It's a word that indicates to permit, to allow, uh, to leave alone and to let teach. It almost seems grudgingly it's not that they have that they have wholeheartedly embraced this because there's a remnant in this church that is not a part of this at all but it seems as though that they have let it go that they have tolerated it this is the you know what's going on here is a complete opposite of what we're given in first timothy 2 12 i paul telling to timothy i do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man rather she should she is to remain quiet now i believe there's different contexts that we could look at in that but at the same time i believe it's pretty clear uh, clear not queer Amen. clear uh, that, that there is only one teaching uh gender one teaching leadership role within the church among the church as a whole there may be leaders of ladies among leaders I believe Titus speaks of older women teaching younger women I believe that's in order for women to lead into God and to have roles among women but as far as the church collectively it's clear in 1 Timothy that that role is to be is to be held and navigated by a man no matter how inept he is no matter how good of a teacher this woman may be 
It's still given just as the same as roles are given in the home in the, for the father. The father is the one to take the accountability. And I think a lot of it stems to accountability. Accountability in the church needs to be borne by the shoulders of a man to be responsible in the home as well and in the church. There is a responsibility that is given to a man. Do you really know uh, really want to know why the church is where it is today? I mean, listen, uh, their church is all over town. Uh, there's a, there's a, a basically a split going on right now in the Methodist church over gay marriage, over homosexuality, over homosexuals in the ministry, in the leadership, uh, even, even as part of the church. Do you know where that began to make its inroads? Oh, it's not with the, with the Supreme Court okaying gay marriage. No, it goes far beyond that because it comes from nearly 50 years ago when many denominations began to throw at the Bible's teaching that women should not teach or preach in the church as a whole. I believe that is the first fissure among denominations that will take and will be exacerbated because if you say, well, well, the Bible teaches that women shouldn't teach and preach within the church and the collection of the saints, well then if that's in the Bible and we say in a it's okay, then what else is in the Bible that we can say it's okay? And that fissure begin to grow and begin to grow. After you throw out the Word of God on one issue, what's to keep you from throwing it out on another? And then another? And then another? And it's just grown and grown and grown until it's where we are today. Listen, it matters how things are done in the church and who does what in the church. And this letter is specific in that regard. Yes, and then, then came in this revelation, then came a fornication. What kind of twisted... He said Jezebel, who calls herself prophetess, verse number 20, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Idols, what kind of bizarre, sensual teaching is going on at Thyatira? I don't know that I want to know, but I do know this. It is drawing the members in by their most basest urges of sensuality and bringing into the church wickedness of fornication and idolatry. And verse number 24 it says in verse number 24, uh, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching. That word teaching there is where we get our word doctrine. They were, she was teaching as a doctrine of the church, not some kind of spiritual inclination that is outside the Bible. No, she's trying to take the Bible and make it say uh, that fornication and, and worshiping idols is okay. It's being taught as a doctrine from the pulpit, a doctrine of the depths of Satan, Jesus calls it, being taught in this church. From this point, the church looks exactly like the world. I want to address something right here that has often bothered me. If, if you know your Bible fairly well, you'll know that in, I believe, 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with the subject of meat sacrificed to idols. How many know what I'm talking about? In 1 Corinthians, he talks about meat sacrificed to idols, and Paul is basically giving an argument that Christians can eat meat served to idols. Now, he makes it very clear. 
He's like, if you go to the market and you buy this cheaper meat that's been, uh, that's been sacrificed to idols, that's what it was, the cheaper meat to buy because it had already been through the, uh, the sacrificial system of the pagan temples and so it was sold after the fact that it was a little bit cheaper to buy. He said, meat is meat. Those gods are no gods at all. You know that. I know that. And so if you can buy that meat to feed your family, buy that meat. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's just meat. And so he makes an argument there. Now he also says, now if you have a brother comes in your house and he is of a mind that, uh, that hey, that meat, that, that's wrong to do that kind of thing. That's wrong. It may be right for you, but it's wrong for your brother. If it's wrong for your brother, don't do it. You buy the other meat. You pay the cause of not being a stumbling block to your other brother. He teaches a whole lesson, a valuable lesson for us in the church as well. But I want you to understand something. It was not associated that buying the meat sacrificed to idols was not associated with the worship of idols and fornication. Notice here, and I always thought, I always wondered myself, does the Bible contradict itself? Because 1 Corinthians, Paul says it's okay to eat meat served to idols. And then Jesus comes down hard in both Pergamum, in the letter to Pergamum, it's also mentioned as well, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. But look at this, the practice of sexual immorality, they're coupled together. That's something completely different. And I believe that's why we can say there is no contradiction in the Bible because every time it's mentioned in these letters, it comes part and parcel. Meat sacrificed to idols and sensuality, sexual immorality. That is exactly what went on in the pagan temples, in the Greek mythology. There was sexual immorality and sacrifice to those pagan gods. Here we see that is the context of what's mentioned here. It's just plain outright adultery. It's just plain out right living like the world and living like everybody else and doing what everybody else does around them. Paul's not talking about this in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about buying meat served to idols. He's not talking about sacrificing meat. He's talking about buying meat for your dinner table that has been previously served to idols. I just want to make that clear. That's something that's always wrestled with me and I've gotten some clarity on the fact that it's always mentioned when Jesus condemns it, it's always mentioned part and parcel with sexual immorality which is blatantly the context of idolatry of the day. So basically she's teaching the idolatry of the day. She's teaching a permissiveness in the church. You don't have to hold this standard. Why, you can tip your hat to the world. You can have sexual immorality, which took place at these temples. And, you know, at those temples, hey, if you're hungry, you eat something. Hey, if you want sexual sexual, uh, desire, well, then you just go satisfy that. That's just like hunger. It's just like thirst. If you're thirsty, you drink some water. If you have sexual desire, you go down here and fulfill it. That's the way the world saw it. That's the way they saw it. Isn't that way we see it today? If you have a proclivity to do this, or you have a shine to do that and it, it, may, it may go against the Bible but listen, no, God made you and so therefore you got to follow every sinful, lustful desire that comes from out of the fallen heart of every of, of, of blackened heart of sin. you got to follow. That's what the world's teaching is. And so here's this Jezebel. She's bringing in a doctrine that basically, it basically is saying be like the world. Vance Havner said, and I believe it's applicable here, the world is so churchy and the church is so worldly that you can't tell the difference between the two. That is exactly exactly what Jezebel was doing. 
And listen, Jezebel is alive and well. The church is being seduced by the permissive, hypersexualized world around us, doing whatever it can do to appeal to the flesh. From man-centered self-help mentality and the preaching and teaching to an all-out acceptance of lifestyles that are clearly condemned in the Scripture. No, Jezebel is loose and in the churches of our world today. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't say this enough that we must guard ourselves uh, against it, uh, that we must, we must keep it as far away from our intimate life because that's how it makes its way in. And how it starts at home. It starts, and, and, and what we take in in our media, what we resonate, what we think about in our own minds, and we bring that and we start making inroads into the conversations of the church, and, and then we get at larger churches. I, I know of a church in Chattanooga, a well-known, large Baptist work that has tolerated a, a Jezebel that... I don't know if it's sensual in nature, but I do know this. It is a teaching that is contrary to the Word of God. It's been permitted just to lay around and to sit around and to seethe under the surface and gain a following and be a cancer in that church. Listen, we do not need to allow that among us to be named among us. In verse 21, it says that her sin... Her deep-seated rebellion, she refuses to repent. We need to think carefully and clearly about what Jesus sees, not only in our church, but in our individual lives. Because our individual lives, guess what? They make up the church. This building's not the church. Uh, those pews are not the church. I think we're proving that this morning. We don't have to have that building to be the church. We're the, we're the church. We're the people of God. We're the ones that have been called to this place, to serve this place, to be a light of Jesus Christ. We're the church. And so we are to guard our individual lives. Notice also, not only, not only do we see the church sinful and diseased, but a, but a church sincere and devoted. A church sincere and devoted. Man, I love this part. Notice that Jesus not only sees the blatant, arrogant sin of this Jezebel, but he also sees something else. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love, and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I want you to know that it's not all bad down at Thyatira. You know, we may think we may think awful of these Methodist churches that are uh, that are bringing in, you know, uh, that are really seriously considering blessing same-sex unions and and having uh, gay clergy and all of this going on. But listen, I, I want you to understand something. There may well be people within that church that love the Lord Jesus uh, that are locked into that place that are praying against what is going on in that situation. Thank God, a believer can blossom in the worst of conditions. Jesus commends their works in their service. Oftentimes the work of a servant is quickly forgotten and easily overlooked upon completion. But the fiery eyes of Christ see not only the wood, hay, and stubble, He also sees the gold, the silver, and the precious stone of our labors of love. Jesus sees what you do. <laughs> he sees what we do. He sees the grounds being kept up. He sees the, uh, the work that's done over here. He sees the secretarial work. He sees the things done around this place. He sees the prayers every one of us give for this place. Jesus sees that. It's not lost on Him. Even in a place as bad as Thyatira where this wicked teaching is going on, Jesus commends their service. Jesus sees their labors. He also sees the motives 
behind these acts of love that are not only seen or not known and, and, and seen by others. He says, I've seen your love. <laughs> Jesus sees your love for him. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? He sees your love. I may not be able to see it. I can see maybe what you do because you love Jesus, but I can't see your love for Him. Jesus sees the motivations behind it. He sees their love. He sees their faith. He sees their patience. Maybe these people in Thyatira are praying for this Jezebel to get right. Uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're praying for the leadership to know what to do. Evidently, it's just being tolerated, pushed to the side. It's a bad problem. Jesus knows it's a problem, but maybe there are people in there that are praying that God would do something about this situation. He saw the pure heart of their labors, of His people, of people sincere and devoted to love. Notice in the last phrase, in verse number, verse number 19, he said, and your latter works exceed the first. Careful, carefully note that in the words of Jesus' commendation started with the works and ended with the works. They had progressed in their growth and service of Jesus. can't tell you how many times I've seen through the years, and I've not been in the ministry all that long, but I've seen people come in on the front end with great works and laboring for God, and how over the years that's just tailed off to nearly nothing by the end, and they, they become bitter, and they become hateful and cynical, but more than likely because they've been looking at church members instead of the, of the, the husband of the church. They've been focusing on what people do here instead of focusing on Jesus. But when we focus on Jesus, hey, listen, it's supposed to be greater works and greater love and greater devotion. I know more about Him. I ought to be more like Him. I ought to love Him more dearly than I did at the first. So I've heard it said many times, oh, we used to be real active in the church, but then this hypocrite was found out and the church split. I know that can be disheartening to all of us. We see things happen down at the church house. But here is a group of saints that continued to serve Jesus as their church was being torn apart and deeply rooted uh, and, and deeply rooted, becoming deeply rooted in the discipleship of Satan, uh, the disciple of Satan who was teaching within the church. I thank God for you. Of what this church has been through through the years, and I'm not necessarily saying that this applies to the past or anything like that, but I thank God for you. I thank God that you're still here, that you serve the Lord Jesus, that you want to be a light for Jesus in this place and labor for Him in this place. Jesus sees uh, these, this scene. Uh, your labor is not lost on Him, but He sees it. It's not lost in His sight. Lastly, we see the discovery of their sin, the description of their state. Finally, the declaration of their sentence. Man, this is just uh, horrendous. Verse number 21, He says that I, I give her a pass, time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. The end result of Jesus' analysis was a verdict of judgment. Now, although there was a space to repent, uh, between the fiery eyes of Jesus' perception and the brazen feet of His judgment, it was just a space. It was a definite period, a, a period of time. God's Spirit, as we're told in in the book of Genesis, I believe it's chapter 6, God's Spirit would not always strive with man. 
His long-suffering is long-suffering, but there is a point in which judgment does come. Have you ever gone down to the cemetery and looked at those tombstones? You see the date of their birth and the date of their death, and in between there's a, a little dash. That little dash in all of our lives is a space to repent. Everyone will ultimately receive the verdict, verdict, but we have a life to repent. And notice the recompense of rebellion. God's response to the rebellion is judgment. He said, I'll throw her into a sick bed. The bed of fornication is what God uses to bring His wrath. This is often the case with wickedness of sexual sin. The bed of sensual pleasure becomes the bed of sickness and pain. Ask the homosexual that dies of AIDS if, if the wages of their sin was worth a momentary thrill. Ask the promiscuous college student, student with gonorrhea and syphilis if they regret their fornication. Verse number 22 tells us that those who were duped into the false teaching will suffer the same fate. Belief determines behavior. The verse goes on to say, I will kill her children. That's just, oh, here's the meek and lowly Jesus giving a threat. I will kill her children. Uh, commentators are divided over the meaning of this. It is speaking, is it speaking of literal or spiritual children? You know, it's easy to know that John speaks of believers as my little children. Children uh, being that of a certain teaching. Is that what Jesus is referring to? I believe that both may, uh, may allude to both. So often the sins of the parent have a profound effect on the future uh, actions of the children. Also, although the children will be accountable to themselves, they often have a bent. They often uh, suffer, suffer loss and suffer uh, a certain direction, a path because of a parent. But also maybe speaking of Jezebel's disciples, God has a way of killing off false doctrine. Recompense for the rebellious, also relief for the righteous. Look at verse number 24. But to rest, put to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned uh, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. You know, I find it interesting in a world in which is so prone to church hop at any bump in the road. Here is a church. Here is a people within the church at Thyatira who's putting up with an abhorrent doctrine. They're fighting tooth and nail for that church. Desire day and time, the first bump in the road, they pick up their Bible and they're gone. They'll go to somebody anywhere else where that's not going on. They won't fight for it. You know, it's almost like a marriage. The first bump in the road, you're out of there. You're not going to fight for your marriage. You're not going to fight for your home. Well, it ought to be that way about our church as well. We're going to stick it out. We're going to, we're going to fight for what God's done here. We're going to fight uh, for the truth in this place. But here we have this, this righteous that are there in this church. Uh, the people uh, that are... And I'm not talking about them being spotlessly righteous. Of course, they're human. Uh, they fail just like anyone else, but they're carrying on the good fight. They're doing their best to stand for Jesus in this church. 
It's not enough to break the, uh, they're, they're caught up in this and caught up in this sin. It's, this church is slowly imploding. How heartbreaking it is to be in the middle of it, to watch a church go in an ungodly direction while you're trying to be obedient to God. But I want you to know that God promises to spare the bystander, those who may be in the same church but are not on the same page as what's taking place in the church. When you watch the war tactics of the United States troops, and I've heard of it specifically here lately for Israel, and how that they they are very dissecting and precise in what they do, and how they how they show force back against those that have been bombing them, the Palestinians, how they have very exacting and precise uh, bombing runs, and and they 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 try to. Uh, try not to incur civilian casualties. But many times, even though they try, unsuspecting civilians are killed in, in these military actions. But I want you to know that the judgment of God here is said to hit only the target. When His judgment comes, He'll hit only the target. Jesus will not put up uh, would not put upon you an undue burden. This is relief for the righteous. Those that are endeavoring to follow God in the midst of adverse circumstances. You may be living and serving among the vilest. You just remember that God sees and promises deliverance. Finally, the reward to the redeemed. The latter part, verse number 25 only hold fast what you uh, only hold fast what you have until I come and the one who conquers uh, and who keeps my words until the end to him I will give authority over the nations and he and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my father the righteous few are commanded to cling to the truth that brought them into the kingdom. To see such devastation may cause some of them to want to throw up their hands and want to walk away from the church. But these redeemed ones are encouraged to stay faithful in times of despair. And they're promised the kingdom of God. If we remain faithful, we will rule with our Lord Jesus. I believe this is an allusion uh, to the millennial reign where, where we will be. The people of God will rule this earth. We'll, we'll command uh, positions of authority over the, the, the earth itself under the command of Jesus Christ. There will be dominions over which the children of God will be given charge as rewards of service. Then he speaks about the morning star. I will give him, verse 28, I will give him the morning star. It is said of Jesus in Revelation twenty two sixteen, or Jesus says of himself, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things to the church, for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus himself is this star. Now this star, what's interesting to note is this star, the star is a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of direction and guidance. Here we see Jesus says, I'm going to give to you faithful members at Thyatira guidance and joy and direction and hope. 
But basically, all of these are found in Jesus Christ. He basically is saying, I'm going to give you of myself. Isn't that what we want? <laughs> and what we want more of Him. We need more of Him to navigate these times in which we live. Look at verse number 29 in our text. Verse number 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are not immune from becoming just such a church. I want you to understand that. All allowing such wickedness to persist unconfronted, it can get the best of churches. But I wonder when the eyes of the Lord Jesus are cast upon this church, this group of believers assembled here, what does He see? Does He see the makings of a church at Thyatira? No, I, I don't believe we have a lot of false teaching. I sure hope not because I'm doing all of it right now. We don't have Sunday school teachers. We don't have, you know, it's just me, all right? So I, I, I hope that you can say with me that there's not false teaching that is that's making inroads in this church. But what did I tell you earlier? If the church is made up of individuals. And if individual sin is beginning to take root and take hold into our lives, then, then it's not long before it'll seep into the church. My, my question to you is, as Jesus looks at Thyatira and as He looks at Faith Community Church, what does He see? Does He see secret sins, adulteries, fornications, acts of blasphemy, corrupt communications, idolatries? Believe you me, I may not know everything about you, but there is a Jesus that walks among the candlesticks Amen. that does, that does. And yet He gives us a space to repent. <laughs> he hadn't brought judgment. He hadn't Katie barred the doors of the church. We're still here. Power or not, we're still here. Listen, He's given us a space to repent. In this moment, the gate of God's mercy and His grace are as wide as to receive any repentant sinner. Any person, you may be here lost today, never genuinely come to faith in Jesus Christ Doors of grace are wide open. His mercy is as high as the heavens. You don't want to meet the judgment of God. You want to come today. Here's my thought in some summary. The penetrating vision of Jesus may well see our every sin, but His sure judgment is slow, giving us ample time to repent. I think that's what we can take away from Thyatira. He sees it all. And yet He's so gracious and allows a space to repent. You may be here as wicked as Jezebel herself, but I want you to know Jesus is able to forgive your sins and deliver you from the judgment to come, not only upon our individual lives, whether it be at the great white throne judgment of those that are lost, or whether it be at the judgment seat of Christ of those that are saved, or whether it be the judgment of this church in the temporal realm of of our span of time. Jesus is giving us time to repent before He brings judgment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'll close this in prayer this morning, but here's an opportunity. You're invited to ask God to search your heart. Maybe He's already brought things to mind. Maybe He's but he has in my own heart and life. I don't want to leave any room for anything to make its way into my heart and life. And so let's, let's make sure that we repent. He's given us a moment of grace. Don't let Him bring chastisement. Don't let Him bring judgment. But let Him, uh, let him have His way in our hearts and lives. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love You.
And God, as you look upon this church, you see our hearts. You don't. You see. You see more than our Sunday dress, our Sunday best. You see more uh, than our uh, than our quaint and beautiful Christian smiles that we shared to each other. You see who we really are, warts and all. Father, I pray. I pray that you would uh, that you would call every one of us to repent. I repent, Lord Jesus. And God, those things that weakened in my area and my life, God, I pray that you would strengthen them again. But God, we pray that every one of our hearts would be made clean and right before you and that we would be a church that would be blessed of the Lord, strengthened, encouraged by the Lord. And God, we don't want you to come in judgment. And God, we don't want you to come in and, and, and put out a candlestick. No, Lord, we want you to cause it to breathe upon it to make it burn bright again. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.